Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. My name is Dale Williams. I'm pastor of Congregational Care here at LifePoint and also a member of the preaching team. We are so glad that college students can join us today. I have a true story of one CSU student. I have a friend who has a daughter who is about college age, and he said that his daughter had a friend who was coming to CSU as a student for the first time this year. This uh, young lady had not come to CSU for the last two years because she had taken care of her parents because they were sick with COVID. In fact, they were pretty sick. Her mother had been in the hospital even. And so for the last two years, this girl had stayed at home and helped with her parents she was pretty isolated and didn't have much uh, uh, contact with others. So when she came to CSU this last week, she moved into the dorm, and there were just hordes and hordes of kids moving in, noise in the hall, everybody talking and laughing, doors banging. When she went down to the dining room, there were four to 500 kids eating, talking all at once, and it was just overwhelming to her. And in the middle of the night, there was still noise and people moving in. One guy even walked into her room unannounced. He, he had got the wrong room. And she just was overwhelmed with a panic attack. And in fact, it was so severe when she got, the morning came, she decided, I can't do this. And she packed her bags and left. Within 24 hours, she moved in and she moved out. It's hard to be content and to find peace in our world. Now, I know not all CSU students are like that, but all of us find difficulty to find that place of quiet, peace, and contentment, especially when we live in a nation of discontented people. One author describes the discontentment, discontentment of our nation. We see it in our high, high, high rate of consumer debt. We aren't content to live within our means, and so we go into debt to live just a bit better than we can afford. But then we suffer anxiety from the pressure of paying all our bills. Of course, the advertising industry tries to convince us that we can't possibly be happy until we at least have their product. And we often take the bait only to find 
that we have one more thing that will break down. We have one more thing to occupy our time in our already overloaded schedule. Our discontent is reflected also in our high rate of mobility. People rarely stay at the same address for more than five years. We're always on the move, looking for a better house, a better job, a better place to live and to raise a family, a better place to retire. Some of the moves are demanded by the need for a decent job, but some of it is fueled by a gnawing discontent that we think will be satisfied when we find the right living situation, but we never quite get there. Our discontent rears its head in our high divorce rate. We can't find happiness in our marriages, so we trade our mates in for a different model, only to find that the same problems reoccur. Our lack of contentment is seen in our clamoring for our rights, all the while claiming that we have been victimized. If we can just get a fair treatment, if we think we'll be happy then, we are suing one another at an alarming rate. Trying to get more money so we can have more things so that life will be more comfortable. We spend money that we can't afford on the lottery, hoping to win a big jackpot while they'll give us what we think we want in life. The theme of the text we have before us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, is contentment. This is getting near the end of the book. And in this section, the Apostle Paul is writing to thank the church for their gift through Epaphroditus, who was sent to Rome where he is in prison, and he had brought a gift from the church to help him with his needs. And Paul wants to thank them, but he quickly adds, but I don't want to talk to you about needs. And he doesn't tell us what he needs and how bad it is and what he's going through. Instead, he said, I have learned to be content in all situations. We want to look at, first of all, what does he mean to be content? And then how did he learn to be content? It's something you learn. And what is the true source of contentment? First of all, what does it mean to be content? The Greek word means to be self-sufficient, to be satisfied, to have enough. The term actually indicates a certain independence, a certain lack of necessity for aid or for help. In fact, it was used in some places outside of Scripture to refer to a person who supported himself without anyone's aid. So Paul is saying, I have learned to be satisfied. I've learned to be sufficient in myself. And yet not in myself as myself, but in myself as I am indwelt by Christ. He had come to spiritual contentment. 
And Paul says he has learned to be content, at peace wherever he is, in whatever situation he finds himself in. When you're content, you're happy. There's peace. There's joy. There's gratitude. And if you'll notice, in this chapter 4 earlier, Paul had talked about rejoicing and joy and gratitude, and they're almost synonymous in Scripture. You cannot be content without being full of gratitude, and you cannot be grateful without being content. When you are grateful, you are content. Back in verse 4, he commanded us to always rejoice, to be glad. And in verse 6, he commanded us not to worry or be anxious for anything, but with prayers of thanksgiving, make our requests known to God. And in verse 7, he introduced us to the peace of God. And in verse 9, he introduces us to the God of peace. Here is a man who knows how to rejoice and to be content in every situation. I think it might be helpful to understand this if we know what the opposite of contentment is. And Hendry Nouwen challenges by saying the opposite of gratitude and contentment is resentment. When we feel that we have been let down, treated unfairly, suffered unjustly, we become angry, we complain and question others and what they have done to us. And Paul has even mentioned this back in chapter 2. He said, work out your salvation, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. And do this without complaining and questioning. We complain and question others and what they have done to us. This complaining and anger settles into us like an emotion of resentment in our heart. And when this anger settles into our hearts, it becomes cold and hard, like swallowed hurt. When we carry resentment in our heart over time, it becomes a part of who we are. It becomes part of our identity. And this settled resentment in our heart has a chilling effect on us and our relationship with others. It makes us suspicious and cynical and depressed. It robs us of joy and makes us almost impossible for us to ask for forgiveness. We look for small ways we can express our dissatisfaction and our resentment but even that gives us little satisfaction. We seek others who can appreciate our frustrations and our resentments and our negative emotions. We want people to sympathize with how hard it is for us. And this puts them on the defensive and it builds up walls around our hearts so that we can't be touched by God or by others because we want to so much to protect our precious resentments. 
But Paul said, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. How can we learn? It's something that we need to learn. Paul says he learned contentment, and then later he says he had learned the secret. Two words in Greek. One means he's got the knowledge, he learned how to do it. But the other one was he unlocked the secret of it. He had found how he could be in prison, suffering, abandoned, facing death, and still be content. Let me summarize from the book of Philippians a couple of lessons that I think Paul learned that helped him be content. The first one is a very foundational lesson that he speaks about in chapter 1, verse 6. He had learned to embrace the providence of God as the rule of his life. And he said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And again in chapter 2 he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, work, do his good pleasure. Let me give you a very theological definition of providence. What are we talking about? John Piper gives us this definition of providence. It is God's purposeful sovereignty. God's purposeful sovereignty governs the movements of the smallest electrons and the largest galaxies. It governs the life of human beings and governments throughout all of history. Its nature is wise and just and good. And its goal is the glory of Christ as the King and Savior of all redeemed humanity. Now that's very theological, and we'll try to break that down a little bit. So let me share an illustration, a way of looking at this that I think will help us grasp what we're talking about when we talk about trusting the providence of God. Think of life as a drama, a play with actors living out a storyline on a stage. Now each one of us has our own story, our own little drama, and we are the directors of our story, and we work for the unfolding drama to our advantage. Of course we do. So we strive to make things work out well in our story. We want the best for ourselves. We manipulate other people even so that we can manage our story, the other actors in our little play. We even pray to God and ask him to help us in our little drama. We ask him to bless us in all the events and the projects and the plots of our lives. And we expect him to respond to us 
with His favor and blessing. And when He does not, we are hurt and we're angry and frustrated with Him. What we often forget is that God also is the director of a play and a plot. God also has a stage and a play that He is directing. His stage is much bigger than our personal little drama. His stage is the whole universe, and it includes all human beings in all of history. And God is directing His play according to His own purpose and plan. So what is God's story? What is His drama? It is a drama with several acts or scenes. And earlier this year, we had a sermon series on the story of God's activity in our world. God's story is traced out in several scenes or acts. The first scene, of course, is creation. Then the second act in which human beings fell from grace and rebelled against God. Then God, through the Old Testament prophets, revealed his existence, his glory, his authority, his standards of justice and truth. He revealed his grace and his love and compassion and his desire to redeem sinful people out of darkness and bring them into the fellowship with God as his children. But the pivotal, central scene, an act of this drama happened when God then sent his only son into the world to suffer and die in order to provide the atonement needed to redeem his people. And now we live in the next scene or act of God which he, in which he is announcing this good news to the world through the power of the Holy Spirit, who was working through human evangelists, so that through the word of truth and the power of his spirit, people from every tribe and tongue and nation can be gathered into the kingdom of God. The final scene of his drama is when Christ will return and take his redeemed people to live with him, and they are granted eternal, unshakable, incorruptible inheritance in the kingdom of God. But right now, we are living in this play of God where he is working through the Spirit-empowered Word of God to bring people from all areas and ethnic groups of the world into the light of the kingdom of his dear son, transforming them into fruitful, loving children of God. So I think we can, if we understand life as a drama, and we have our own little drama, but God has his huge universal drama. And we can understand then that God's providence as he works out his drama and his play, is God's caring provision for his people as he guides them in their journey of faith through life, accomplishing his purpose in them. 
Believing in providence means believing that God has big plans and small plans for this world, for the church, for individuals, for you and me, and he actively does things to see those plans through. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now this means that you and I have a choice to make. We can live life as the director of our own little drama, or we can live as an actor in God's play under his direction for his glory. Are you going to be a director or are you going to be an actor and play a part in God's drama? Paul embraced the providence of God as the proper way to look at the events of his life. He looked at his life as if he was an actor in God's play, not as if he was the director of his own drama. The story of life is not about me. It's about God and his play for the life of all who believe. And this confidence, this submission to the providence of God, his gracious good providence, brings you inner peace and contentment because you accept what God is bringing into your life and you are satisfied with how God is working in your life and the direction he is taking you in your life. But by contrast, many of us we look at our immediate circumstances and we say, where's the peace? Where's the contentment? We are only content when things are working well in our own little personal drama. And that's so temporary. Some of you may be saying to yourself, I trusted God to provide for me and to protect me and to help me. But when I needed him most, he let me down. He did not answer my prayers. He didn't protect me. And I lost everything that was important to me. I can't trust God anymore. What he has allowed in my life is suffering and abuse and poverty and death and loss and illness, and it is not for my good, at least as far as I can see from my little perspective as director of my own little play. It feels like God has forgotten me. He's ignored me. He's let me down, and I can't trust him at all. Life is not what I expected or what I wanted. You know, we live in a world that's ruined by sin. We live in a world filled with sin-corrupted people. And God, in his drama, has allowed this 
to happen so that he can manifest and demonstrate his grace and his love to us when things do fall apart. This means that we will go through times of suffering and loss and conflict and stress and pain, but the providence of God does not promise us that we won't have suffering. It does promise us that we will overcome. God will work all things together so that in the end, we will become like him in his glory. The storms of life are like refining fire that purifies and strengthens us for our life with him. Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? He was hated by his brothers and so they sold him into slavery to get rid of him. They reported to their father that he had been killed, and that brought great grief and sorrow to their father. Joseph was taken to a strange land, Egypt, where they spoke a strange language and a foreign religion. He was put in prison and forgotten, but he did not become bitter and turn his back on God. He remained faithful to God trusting him in all his circumstances. And God raised him up to become the prime minister of Egypt in a time of great famine. And so he was instrumental in that famine to save thousands in the land of Egypt, including his own family who came to buy food. And so at the end of his life, he told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the providence of God. And we must learn to trust completely in God's gracious plans for our lives if we want to find contentment. But there's another lesson that Paul learned that led to his attitude of contentment. And that was that he had devoted his heart to knowing God as the supreme treasure of his life. Again, we are reviewing lessons that we have already learned in our study of Philippians. But this theme of devotion to God comes out several places in the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, 21, for to me, to live is Christ. And we sang that this morning. Paul's greatest desire was to honor and glorify Christ in his body, whether it was by living or in the casket. Paul let go of the past. He abandoned all of his past honors and positions and achievements in order that he might gain Christ. His single-minded focus was to experience the resurrection power of Christ and to share in his suffering. His long-term dream was to someday be united with Christ in glory and to exult in the majestic, holy presence of God. Chapter 3 of Philippians. There's a legend, I don't think it's true, 
but it has to do with a wealthy merchant that lived during the days of Paul when he was here on earth. And he had heard about the Apostle Paul and become fascinated, and so he was determined to try to meet this man. When he got to Rome, he found where he was in house arrest. And as he passed through, he got in touch with Timothy, who was working with Paul, and he arranged an interview with Paul, the prisoner. Stepping inside his cell, the merchant was surprised to find the apostle looking rather old and physically frail. But he felt at once the strength and the serenity and the magnetism of this man who relied on Christ as his all in all. They talked for some time, and finally the merchant left. And outside the cell, the merchant asked Timothy, what's the secret of this man's power? I've never seen anything like it before. Timothy replied, you didn't guess? Paul is in love. The merchant was a little puzzled. In love? Yes, said Timothy. He's in love with Jesus Christ. The merchant looked even a little more bewildered. Is that all? And Timothy said, it's everything. How much do you love Jesus Christ? More than mother and father or children? When I hear a sermon like this about the Apostle Paul, I, I'm just sort of amazed. I, I just sort of stand in awe of him. Is he some kind of superhuman being that he can be suffering, struggling, and still be content? He, I have to realize and remember he's weak. He's a human being just like me and like you. But he learned that as the Holy Spirit of Christ works in him, how he can manage his heart to find rest and contentment. So Paul concludes this text with this phrase, which you probably have memorized, I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Now, be careful. That phrase has been used on more athletic t-shirts than any other verse in the Bible. I can do all things through Christ. I can win football games, and I can win races, and I can do all kinds of things. Short-term mission teams use it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a misuse of this verse and this text. This verse is not about winning football games. And it's not about getting good grades in school or having a great vacation. Keep it in context. Paul is talking about he, how he's learned to be content in all circumstances, whether he is brought low or abounding, 
whether he's in poverty or in plenty, whether he's in abundance or in need. Paul is saying, I have learned how to be content, to be quiet, to be satisfied with whatever God sends my way. And that kind of contentment cannot be worked up on your own. You cannot just go to church and charge up your soul like you would a Tesla car. Christ works in us to bring contentment. Paul admits that he had to learn contentment as Christ and his spirit worked in him to strengthen me. It's as Christ strengthens me that I can do this. I close with this illustration from Johnny Erickson Tata. She recently published a book of hymns that have helped her find contentment in suffering. For more than five decades, Johnny has been paralyzed from the neck down, living in a wheelchair without the use of her hands. When she reads a book, they have to prop it up on a little stand and put a stick in her mouth so she can turn the pages. She has battled stage three cancer several times. But she admits that the hardest thing of all is the chronic pain. The chronic pain is so severe, she says, that her quadriplegia seems like a walk in the park. She's battled discouragement, anxiety, and fear, and depression. Back in the 1970s, she even wrote a book and recorded a video about her struggles and how to overcome them. And she wrote this book on the 16 biblical lessons we can learn from suffering. She thought she had it all down. And she analyzed it all, and it was very technical. Suffering, she said, helps us to learn to depend on him more. Suffering has taught us how to grow in Christ. Suffering refines us as gold so that we can live lives worthy of Jesus. And Johnny admits, after she wrote that, that she saw that she wrote as if suffering was all about her. But suffering, she says in a recent video, is not about me. It's about Christ. Suffering, she says, is meant to press us closer to Jesus. Suffering is meant to help us hear Christ's heartbeat. Suffering is about knowing Jesus and knowing him better. She says, sometimes, some nights, the pain is so severe that she says, I can't put two words together in prayer. But I know some hymns. I've memorized them and they come to me. And so I begin to sing. 
I said, lift up my soul to you, O Christ. And I tell that pain, you are not going to rule my life. You are not going to define who I am. My life is in Jesus. And as she sings in the grips of that suffering pain, his sweet spirit comes to her and fills her. She said, suffering is such a harsh, severe mercy, but it brings me the sweet, lovely ecstasy of knowing Jesus. She says now, thank you, Jesus, for this suffering, for these 50 plus years in the wheelchair. I would rather be paralyzed in this wheelchair and know him than to walk on my own two feet and not know him. When I know him and share in his sufferings, the power of his resurrection works in me and all resentment and discouragement is banished and peace reigns in my heart. That's how I manage my heart, to find contentment in Christ. Thanks be to God. Like Paul, Johnny Erickson Tata has learned to treasure Christ supremely in her life. And because of that, she is content. Where is your heart today? Are you here stressed out, worried, dissatisfied, searching for something more, wishing that somehow God would do this or that in order to make your little play more comfortable, more successful? Contentment will only come when you embrace the providence of God in your life and you treasure Him supremely. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, how sweet it is to be in your presence and to know that you have never taken your eye off of me. You know all about me. And you're working all things together to transform me into the likeness of your Son. Oh, Jesus, there's nothing more precious to me and to be right now in your presence, filled with your love and the power of your spirit. And right now, in your presence, I am content. Oh God, make that true for all of us here today. We pray it in the name of Jesus.
our Savior. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.